Hello everyone, welcome back to episode two of The Meeting Room. Please come in, take a seat and join us. Um, very special episode today, of course. We are joined by the fantastic Paul Toswell. Hello, Paul. Hello everyone, hi. Very pleased to be joining you, Jed and Tim. Of course, I'm Jed Thurkettle and uh, I'll introduce Tim as well as joining us today on this episode. Hey guys. Um, so, Paul, would you actually like to just dive straight in? Who are you? What do you do and where have you worked before? Give us a little intro to Paul Toswell. Okay, well, Paul Toswell, um, I'm a, a man who retired actually five years ago. So um, I hope that's not going to be too much of a disappointment for you guys. So I'm five years actually out of the banking industry, but I guess five years in the scope, overall scheme of things, 33 years working in banking. You know, it's, it's a relatively short period of time, but it's an industry that, of course, as we know, changes by the day. So I'm retired for about five years and uh, I'd worked in my career for four different organisations. One UK clearing bank, one UK merchant bank, one international bank, and then a sort of bit of a hybrid of everything being standard chartered where I spent the last 21 years of my of my career. That's, I mean, that's a hell of a career, if you ask me. Very impressive. Um, so I, I thought we'd we'd attack this podcast sort of chronologically as such, um, especially for for everyone listening right now. They're going to be interested in 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 their particular stage of life. There's going to be a lot of students and 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 things looking looking forward to, well, to entering the job market. So for for you, university. Did you go to university? What what did you do at uni? I did. Um, I, despite the fact I went into banking, I did not do a, what you might call a traditional course that would be a natural entree to, to the world of finance. I went to the University of Birmingham um, and I studied French language and literature with a subsidiary study in music. So as far removed from the world of banking, you can't begin to imagine. So... Um, when I applied to university, I, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So it was a case of deciding, well, what do I really enjoy? And I thought not only was French uh, a subject I enjoyed, but it also gave me an extra year living abroad in France, studying as a student there. So that was an extra, extra um, benefit for me as I saw it at that time. When I got into my final year at university, having had a wonderful year studying and living in France, I still really had no idea what I wanted to do other than the fact that I wanted to uh, find something that would allow me to work with alongside people. A lot of my friends at the time were heading towards accountancy or banking and I thought well accountancy sounds a little bit too serious for for my liking and I thought banking uh, along maybe alongside a couple of other um, routes in marketing or sales I thought would be a good good be a good place to start so went through the milk round process and tell me does the milk round still exist is that something you're familiar with i i don't think then, it does well the milk round it was one of those wonderful things that happened every year all of the major graduate employers would come to university campuses and it would be an opportunity to talk to them following up with um sometimes even with interviews if uh, applications came before before the, the milk round itself. So I went through this process, applied to two pharmaceutical companies and then the four clearing banks. That was NatWest, Midland or HSBC as it now is, Barclays and, and Lloyds. And in the end, um, I got offered a place on the graduate management programme for NatWest and joined them on the grand salary of £7,200 per annum. Just to put it into context, I know you look at very different numbers these days. Um, and when you were actually at uni or even before university, just out of interest, what did you envision yourself going into? Was it banking? No, it wasn't. In fact, one of my old colleagues who um, he always said that he knew at about the age of 10 that he wanted to become a banker. And I always described him as the saddest person I'd ever met for that reason alone. Um, (laughs) No, I really didn't know. And even when I went into, when I joined NatWest, um, obviously I knew it was a great opportunity to get a a full two-year training um, and off which I could launch a banking career. But I really didn't know whether I was going to like it or not. I knew nothing about finance. I barely knew what a debit or a credit was. And I remember going out and buying The Idiot's Guide to Economics or some such sort of 
publication that was around at the time in order to try and educate myself. But it, and it had uh, made limited um, impact, I think, on my rather thick skull. But nevertheless, you know, I did join. And the, the approach I took was, well, if I don't like it, I will just have to find something else. But the truth of the matter is I really did enjoy it. I've, I could see the value of the training I was getting for two years on this um, graduate program and then would launch, use that as the launch pad really for my career. At that point, I thought it would be a career for life with NatWest, but I realised over the first three or four years that probably retail banking was not for me. So the, the training programme you're on, um, obviously, university a lot of the time as well. With with many jobs still to this day, it's about teaching sort of independent thought and, and independent research that can then be applied to to the jobs that you you go into. And um, what sort of skills do you think you picked up at university that were particularly helpful, or useful, even later on in life? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, I think the obvious one to me would be the communication skills that you're, you're able to develop, whether that's written or oral. Skills in terms of relational skills, in, able, in terms of getting on with other people, I think is absolutely key in, in business and certainly in the banking that I went on to do. It, it builds confidence, I think. You know, university is a great, uh, great um, environment in which you can build your own confidence. And you guys actually taking the initiative to do what you're doing running this podcast, um, it has to be a very good thing. So all credit to you for doing it. But uh, those simple soft skills are actually the, the key building blocks, I think, for what comes later in life. Not having any technical abilities, did you feel inferior going into banking? Not on day one, <laughs> but I think it's fair to say that over time, yes. And the the... And, and this is one, one of the learning elements, I suppose, when you go into the workplace from university is you suddenly find that there are 16 or 17 year olds who might have left school um, a year or two earlier who actually know so much more than you do. And it's something that you need to be very aware of, I think, moving into the world of work when you're used to being very much the top of the tree and, you know, king of all you survey and all of that. But a little humility is you realise very quickly is required just to acknowledge that there are 17-year-old schoolers who, or you know, school leavers who can do things so much more quickly. Because I think, I think the culture now is moving a lot more. I know not so much in my last year of school, but now particularly it's moving a lot more towards apprenticeships as well mm. because the idea is that you, you're making money, learning these skills earlier on whilst everyone else is is getting into debt getting their degree and it, in terms in certain situations getting a degree that's not even perhaps applicable to what they want to go into and so I know there is a large push now for for that to be the way and it's almost a, a stigma that um, going to university is the only way forward to to be making making any sort of money as such mm. Mm. yeah uh, I mean I think that's that's something that's very different today from how it was in my day and of course at the I think in the early 80s graduating in 1982 I think it was only about five percent of the uh, of the sort of sixth form population that or five percent of the uh, of the age group that went into university onto tree um, education that is not the case anymore so the whole uh, university experience is very very different now from what it was there. Um, now, the, the first job, obviously, at NatWest, how did you prepare for this? You, you found out you've got the job going forward into this because you, you are sort of being thrown in at the deep end as such from, from uni life to a job. How, how did you go about preparing? Well, I mean, the, the structure of that training was, was quite clear, actually. So it was two years. The first year of that was spent, for me, in a branch, um, a NatWest branch in Piccadilly in the West End of London. And the whole purpose of that year was to expose me to absolutely every function of a branch, um, what it did. So that included processing checks in a machine room. Um, and that's where the 16 and 17 year olds were so quick. They could, they could encode yeah. checks in no time at all. It would take me a day just to do a pile of 10. 
Um, it was working on a till. I spent a month on a till. One of the worst experiences of my life, I have to say, I could never balance the till. And I had to rely on a friendly little uh, 17 year old to do it for me almost every day. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's that that was part and parcel of what was going to be necessary for me had I stayed within retail banking. You need to know how all those mechanics work, I think, to be credible going forwards. But apart from you know, a machine room and a, and a till, I would I I moved quite quickly onto working directly with the manager of the bunch and that's where you begin to start to deal with customers and sort out all the the issues of day-to-day banking that people and small companies face do you think that experience on in inverted commas the shop floor is uh, mm. quite important because i know even now there's there's certain industries where you these graduate schemes the first mm. just three weeks of them are working on the shop floor, particularly with supermarket schemes. Um, do you yeah. think that is important to be aware when you move up and you start managing those people, you know, you understand the processes? I do. Absolutely. I, I, I agree. Absolutely agree with that. Yeah. So after that first year, um, I moved on to what was deemed to be uh, quite a prestigious move. I moved into the regional office in the city of London. And happily for me, that exposed me to a lot of the large corporate clients of the bank and introduced me at the same time to the world of um, credit control, um, risk management and such things that really are, you know, so much of what banking is about. And so I began to realise that retail banking was definitely not for me, but that corporate banking was the route that I wanted to follow. So was this about the time when you started managing people and, and dealing with people as opposed to retail banking? Yeah, well, I would say at that in those early days, and this was only sort of year two of my working life, my involvement was me as a sort of mentor to fresh graduates that were just coming in. Um, and it wasn't until a little bit later that I would say I found myself managing a team of people. So banking in the finance industry is very idiosyncratic. It's very technical and quite difficult to learn. How did you pick up um, the knowledge which was needed in those first two years? Right. A lot of it came through the study um, of and the exams related to the Chartered Institute of Banking. A lot of it too came from the work working directly with people who were obviously a lot more experienced than I was but I would say it was less my time in that west which was quite structured and quite hierarchical and it was much more when I moved out of that west into my second uh, job and that was with Hill Samuel which at the time was a leading merchant bank Um, where I began to really, I suppose, get to grips with the challenges that that corporate clients had and how to manage them and how to make things work for them as a banker. So that that was a very different move. But by then I began to realise that's where I wanted to head. It was corporate banking and it was client facing. Really was dealing with the clients that I enjoyed. And out of interest, what would you say that in the past your once you've got into this sort of role that you are far more interested in, um, the the projects that you've then dealt with over the years, what would you say your favourite project was? You know, it's it's very very difficult to to sort of single single those out because I've dealt with a great many clients over the years of various sizes, from small, relatively modest turnover UK corporates privately owned or or listed on one of the junior exchanges, perhaps. And at the same time, a lot of the business I was doing with them was interesting. And at the other end of the scale, I've dealt with multinational um, oil corporates. So, you know, very, very different. But if I had to single out any projects, I guess there there are one or two. One of them, I think, was would have been working on what turned out to be a regional cash management mandate, which covered Asia for one European multinational. 
And this was interesting for various reasons. For one thing, dealing with the global multinational can be very challenging. They're extremely demanding, very experienced, know exactly what they want and how they want it. So it's a case of working out how you can marry the skills that you've got to offer or the products that you've got to offer versus the demands uh, and the expectations that the client has. So projects of this kind are extremely complex. You need to get any number of different people involved and engaged and alongside internally from within the organisation that you work for, so within the bank, and that can be anyone from the board down. Um, and at the same time, you need to know that with confidence that you can bid on a project for a mandate confidently alongside and in the face of the competition from other multinational banks who are going to be chasing that same sort of business. These, the business of this kind is extremely valuable, usually ties in a client for a very long time to one bank and demands a whole variety of, um, of products to be available um, in many, many different locations. So this particular project, it was, it involved, it was, there was liquidity management, you know, there was cash pooling and cash sweeping, foreign exchange management, interest rate management, local banking services, you know, including trade finance, loan and, and working capital facilities and such like, access to capital markets in certain cases. So you're bringing together almost anything and everything that a bank can offer, packaging it and presenting it in a, in a credible way to a client. Now, this, this particular client I, I worked with for 10 years. I was their main um, relationship guy, if you like. So it was up to me to make sure that all of the right people and all of the right products were brought in to the right place at the right time, all together at a price that suited the client, of course, and beat the competition. So there's projects like this take a long time to put together. You know, it can be two or three years in the making and it can be won or lost at the last minute, depending on whether or not what's available. But that, that sort of project is enormously satisfying um, and, and a great deal of fun. Um, in, in terms, you mentioned earlier about having the sort of in, in times the confidence to bid for certain mm. projects. Were, were there... Were there ever situations where you perhaps didn't feel that there was that confidence or, or perhaps you'd, you'd won the project and you felt slightly in over your head and then it's, it's a learning curve again trying to, to keep up? Certainly it's a learning curve. Often, um, and in my experience, no bank is different to this. When clients are pushing the agenda in terms of technical competence of the, the financial markets or... Um, individual banks to deliver a solution, then it is not unusual for banks to say that they can or will be able to deliver a certain solution, knowing that they've got a lot of work to do before the reality. And there's a difference between, if you like, the timing. It's a, it's a timing issue. It's a question of, yes, we can certainly be able to, we can deliver that in three or four months' time, Today, we can't do it, but absolutely confident that we can deliver it by the time you need it. So uh, that comes and brings with it a huge amount of stress. Certainly for someone like me, who is the front of the front man, if you like, who gets not only the praise when things are going well, but also all of the, all of the aggravation from a client when things go badly, when things can't be delivered as, as hoped for. So you know, you're living on your wits and you are relying on a huge team of people usually developing products and things behind the scenes in order to make sure that things can be um, brought to the, the, the clients um, when needed. When, when a client got aggravated with you, mm. how did you deal with it and return it to a positive relationship? There's a difficult question, Tim, um, because no client is quite the same and a lot of it, I found, usually came down to the level of trust that you had actually built with that client over time. That's enormously important. And um, trust can be blown very easily, but 
I think if you're if you're able to develop the right relationship over time, then you've got credibility, if you like, which will go a long way. I, I certainly have found myself over the years in situations where it's been extremely difficult. And the last thing, of course, you need to do is lose business. That doesn't do anyone any good, least of all someone like me, who is, is rewarded for successful delivery of business. But the, the, the challenges of dealing with a disgruntled customer will never be quite the same. But I would say that resolution of those problems really comes down to the ability with which you can use the, the level of trust and that you've built up over time. During a moment of tension like this, we've got the pressure of the managers and the pressure of the client. Mm. How did you separate your feelings of anxiousness and stress at work to your home life? <laughs> Another good question. And I think, I wish there was an easy answer to that, but I, I've always considered myself to be very fortunate in a way because I have most of the time been able to walk out of the office and leave work behind. And I don't know why that is because many of my colleagues had really struggled with that. Um, but I, I think the way I've approached it always has been that work is work and home is home. And I, I, I was very happy to work long hours if that was necessary, but once the computer was off and I was at home, then home was, you know, my priority. And, uh, you know, it can be, you can be pulled in every direction. I think the more you give or the, the more inclined you are to log on when you're in a home environment, when in theory, you're way outside the office hours, I think the more if you do it once you'll do it again and again and again and it becomes too much of a habit which is not good for anyone I think in my estimation. It's easy to say and not so easy to do sometimes but I count myself as I say very fortunate that I was just able to dislocate those mm. things in my mind. So in terms of then in a situation where you are facing challenges and I'll this two-part question as such firstly that the biggest challenges that you found um, in general with the job and as you've gone through your career, what those challenges have been. And also in specific, if you've had like a, a very challenging project, whether it be deadlines or, or something like that, it, in those moments, again, that ability to separate your, your home life when you know something's perhaps not, not, not going to plan at work, um, how do you do that and what were these challenges that you were facing? Well, um, difficult question. Um, I think one of the things that really helped in the context of work was the colleagues, the relationships that you actually build up with your colleagues. And it's amazing what can be put to rights when you're, when you're traveling and you're away with colleagues working on a big pitch over a gin or a beer or something of that kind. And, and the mutual support that you get from clients when you're working together on a, on a key project, uh, from, sorry, the mutual support from colleagues when you're working together on projects is enormously valuable and it can that there's a lot of fun to be derived too as you you know sort of wrestle with the challenges of the of the transaction um, with with colleagues but um and sorry jed the second part of your question was so perhaps the the biggest most challenging project that you've actually had to deal with right Okay. Well, the one I, I've I've mentioned the one um, to you already, but uh, I would say thinking back to my earlier career when I was working at Hill Samuel, it was at a time in the late eighties when everything was being privatised, way before you were both born. But bus companies used to be national, and they would be run on a sort of county by county basis almost. But in the late 80s, these were all being privatised by the government and they were being bought up by you know, the management or by companies that were set up to specialise in bus transportation and such like. At that point, working with Hill Samuel, a lot of the advisory work was being handled by the corporate finance team within the, the, the bank. For me, at that point, I was on the very much a lending side 
and I, I think probably the challenge there was as a young keen banker wanting to um, you know make a bit of a mark it was it was all about how did I how could I ensure that actually this other element of the bank that I was working for could be used for the benefit of the client who was being advised by you know behind closed doors corporate finance um, function um, and it was at that point I had very little um, I would say experience of dealing with corporate financiers who at that time certainly considered themselves to be well above a mere corporate banker many of whom were had lots and lots of experience I should also say that at that point the the month I joined Hill Samuel Bill Samuel just done the British Airways flotation. So they were at the very top of the tree in terms of what merchant banks or investment banks, as you might call them today, were up to. So they'd just done that. And here I was trying to convince some rather self-possessed corporate financiers that alongside the advisory work that they were doing, we should be also putting in place some working capital facilities and loan facilities to support the, the bids for the bus franchises. So that was, that was quite a challenge, but in a different way from the challenge that I expressed around that regional cash mandate, which, which was much more technical and much more diverse, but nevertheless quite a challenge for me as a young man. Um, now, Tim's actually got a very good question, um, which I think is uh, quite important, especially in a society where people are moving much more towards perhaps values of a company, um, what, what companies represent, things like that. Um, now, Tim, would you, I mean, would you like to ask about the compromising one's own in, uh, individual values? Of course. So I think very much people have a perception of banking, mm. whereas it's all about money. People end up ignoring their own personal values for financial success, either individually or as a bank. Did you ever feel pressure from management or the board to compromise your own values in order to successfully get a client or successfully get some sort of financial return? Well, uh, yeah, couple of couple of examples perhaps that uh, I could quote. One would be with regard to a parastatal oil company. Now, of course, the value of oil and hydrocarbons to countries is generally speaking, enormous. Oil and gas, often the reserves are in parts of the world where governments, the, the lines between government and corporates are somewhat blurred. So it can be a challenge often to, you know, marry those two things alongside a value, you know, a viable business opportunity. Because, you know, history has shown that you know, governments will plunder for their own benefits and for the benefits of politicians, natural resources, whilst leaving a country somewhat short of the value of those resources. So there have been instances in to, where, where I have struggled with maybe some of the concerns that I might have had around, well, where is all this money going? Um, is it really finding its way to the right people? Um, and the value of the exploitation of hydrocarbons, is that going to benefit the nation versus individuals within it? But all you can do in those circumstances is, I think, work prudently and sensibly and within the bounds of legal and um, regulatory frameworks to ensure that everything is confined, if you like, within, within the boundaries that actually are beyond scrutiny. It's, it can be a challenge, but generally speaking, with lawyers and with an equal will, I think on everyone's parts, you know, you can make these things work. Have there have been situations where you've decided against taking on certain projects because of these and, and sort of being aware from how these projects go that perhaps making it uh, stick to certain regulations isn't going to be mm. plausible? Well, yeah, I mean, there are instances where projects have not happened and either either because I have decided with a client that actually it's not something that we can really pursue. And, and a, a good example of that might be 
in the 1990s, there was a, a, a large project called the Three Gorges Dam in China. One of my clients was bidding, very keen to bid for some of the engineering contracts, the turbine contracts in that project. The environmental issues associated with that project, and I see, I remember it was, it, it was going to, it was a massive dam. I mean, huge. It was going to create a reservoir that was effectively 600 kilometers long, if memory serves me. Um, it was going to displace people. It was going to, you know, ruin the environment for so far up the Yangtze River. Um, it, there were any untold issues attached to it. And despite the obvious determination and ambition I had to support the client, there was no way that this was going to get through any of the um, risk committees of the bank I was working with at the time. So that, that, that would be, I suppose, one example where you just can't marry up one thing against the other. Mitigating risks, whatever those risks are, whether they are credit or environmental or reputational, whatever they are, they are um, real risks that banks have to take into account very, very obviously and be able to demonstrate that they are duly accounted for. If banks ignore them, then you'll find the NGOs, um, and that could be Greenpeace or any other lobbyists that are out there, coming along and, uh, and sort of causing a lot of trouble, reputationally at least, for, for the banks involved. And do you think in today's world especially, things like this have gotten a lot harder with a, a, a moral push forward towards an environmental things? Do you think that's perhaps hindered uh, certain nations in from an economic perspective where they're unable to, to complete certain projects? Well, I think the environmental risk um, issues have over the last good number of years now 10-15 years in particular perhaps have got greater and greater and there are armies of individuals I think in many of the large banks days um, ensuring that the banks are um, adopting the right position involving the right consultants to check out the risks quite specifically and it doesn't matter whether you're talking about, you know, the Pacific um, grey whale in, uh, you know, in around the Sakhalin Islands where there are oil and gas, where but that happened to be the, the mating grounds and the of, of that particular whale and where there are also oil and gas hydrocarbon deposits. You know, that's, that's, you've got to somehow to, to marry, marry those one off against the other and, and the risks. So, yeah, the, these issues are quite, severe these days and need to be taken very very seriously by financial institutions um, now tim i believe you wanted to talk about what maybe perhaps a well maybe a misconception art in the banking industry but the idea of burning out in this mm. in this industry in this career mm. yeah burnout you, in in banking yeah, have you got do, a, do, you, do think... you want to frame a question tim yeah so so burnout has become quite prominent at a lot of banks in there taking measures to counteract it and burnout would probably be defined best as a feeling of fatigue which compromises the quality of your work as a result of the continuous stress and pressure that you face being in such a fast-moving institution. Did you ever experience this feeling and did you consciously or unconsciously find ways to counteract it? Right. Okay. Um, I, I think on a personal level, uh, you know, as I've said before, I think I've always been quite fortunate separating work from uh, life outside work. But I would absolutely say that there is a sort of team fatigue that I have seen within the uh, banks that I've worked in where pressure and individual agendas sometimes within the teams where I've worked have caused exactly what you say, caused people to be demotivated and very stressed, feeling that actually whatever they do, however well they do it, they're not somehow being recognised or, or delivering what's needed. And that is something that I think has come very much more since the 2008 financial crisis, I would say. 
pressure from external agencies, um, central banks, regulators, uh, and such like globally have caused a great deal of pressure, which has undermined it. I, I, I began to feel as, as my career came towards its end, that was actually really jeopardizing the, the lifeblood, the, that relationship, if you like, that exists between client and, and bank. And that's something I think the banks are still grappling with, really. I was going to say, do you think that there are, do you think there are measures that are being put in place, or even just in the institutions you've worked in, that are perhaps looking to tackle this, and not just the idea of burnout, but promoting mental health again, something that's really being pushed forward these days. Well, I think it's true to say that you know, even in the last five years. Uh, well, and the, the time that I've been outside of, of the workplace, if you like, I am aware that there's a great deal more support in terms of um, mental health well-being. Uh, you, it's on the news almost every day, isn't it? And I think large corporations, including banks, need to take that seriously, and I think are doing so. Um, now, whilst at Standard Chartered, if if I'm correct, you were working in graduate recruitment as well. I did, yeah. I was. I didn't work in graduate recruitment, but I was involved as one of the the business people um, in terms of assessing graduates as they were brought into the bank. That's right. Um, yeah. Now, I think this is something that everyone listening now could benefit massively from. Mm-hmm. Is in in terms of. Well, when we leave university and and graduate, hopefully, anyway, um, what is being looked for in a graduate and what makes someone stand out to you? Because in today's world, there's this this issue of having no work experience, but needing that that job and that work experience to be considered, but you can't get it without the work experience, you know. So what would make someone stand out to get them on that first step of the ladder as such? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question and it's not an easy one to answer really. I think, you know, academic performance is taken as read. I imagine it's you, you have to get a first or two one to sort of confirm, be able to move forward with any job offer you might have. I imagine that is, is still the case. So, you know, in a way, diligent academic performance, I think, has to be assumed before you go anywhere else. But I think really, you know, what it comes down to is how candidates will perform on assessment centres in terms of how they've acted, how they've reacted, and how they sort of fit fit in with, with other people that, that, that they're being assessed alongside. You know, the loudest, the most bombastic individual in my experience, with good degree in business and finance, I would say is less likely to impress than maybe the quieter, more considered candidate who was able to sort of win over others and argue a clear case and, you know, support his or her views whilst acknowledging the strengths of other arguments that are coming through. So I I guess that most banks still in addition to applications, will have some sort of um, parallel assessment process. And I think, you know, if you're looking for advice from me for these these very stressful assessment centres, having both done them as a candidate and been an assessor on them, then I would say be humble and be willing to learn, even from those who you might consider to be beneath you, or either in terms of ability or, or age or whatever. So, yeah, you know, I think the, it was rarely, in my experience, the, the loudest individuals that actually were, were the ones that impressed in the end. It's a bit like if you were, were wanting a, a flower to grow quickly, you might be able to get it done if you throw it in some, put a seed on some shallow ground in the sun and water it and it will quickly grow, but it's got nothing to, to push its roots into. It might grow very quickly in flower and that will be it wither and die. Something that is rather more well-established would, would grow and flourish. Now, I, I think what somehow what you need to be able to do as, a, as a, an aspirant banker graduate or an undergraduate just, you know, hoping to move into, into banking I think you've got to be honest about where your 
strengths are. You've got to be humble. Uh, I think recognize that you, once you've got through your degree, you're not going to be the be all and end all of, of everything. And I think you've got to realize that you've got to be able to work and get along with people. And in my experience on assessment centers, it would generally be, there would usually be out of a group, let's say of 20 people, there would usually be the same, everyone would hone in on the same group or the same individuals. So if I were looking at potential candidates to go into a client facing relationship management sort of role, and alongside me, I had someone from the dealing room or the trading floor or something who was looking for individuals who might make good foreign exchange traders, you can almost guarantee that the, the skill set that they and the, the people that stood out to them would be the same people that stood out to me. And we, it would then be an argument between us, well, why do you think? And actually, are they really going to be able to trade FX or are they going to be able to you know, negotiate the fine terms of a, of a transaction with a client over dinner? Which, which is it? You know, how does the mind work? So it's, it comes down much more, I think, to the individual um, softer qualities of that, uh, of that person, assuming everything else is equal in terms of academic brilliance and technical knowledge and all of that stuff. So the type of person you are, I don't think you can pretend on these things. And they are, these assessment centres are generally designed to expose pretense. So you've got to be honest and you've got to be with yourself and with the people around you. It doesn't mean to say that you don't seek to take an active role in, in any assessment centre, but don't necessarily think that just because you shout loud means you will be the one that gets the notice and gets the job offer. It doesn't work that yeah. way. I think that's brilliant advice, to be honest. So you mentioned soft skills. Mm. A vice president at another bank mentioned to me that during an assessment centre, he looks out not only for communication mm. skills, but curiosity. Yeah. Are there any specific soft skills that you were looking for during these assessment centres? Well, I would say humility is one of them, as, I, as I've used that word several times today. I think honesty as well. Honesty in terms of your argument and dis into when you're discussing, but honesty for in terms of the person that you are. So being honest with yourself about what you're, why you are doing what you want, what you're, you're, you're doing. Then the other thing that I think when you're in the workplace is, is pretty important is, is a sense of loyalty. And I say that not because once you join a bank, you should stay there forever. That's not what I mean, but I think you, loyalty within the, I suppose within the boundaries of what you consider to be the right thing for you within an organisation um, up to the point where it no longer sort of makes sense. Um, and I'm not sure that that really makes sense, actually, what I've said. But I think you've got, you've got to be true to yourself, haven't you? Um, now, it's a, a slight side note, but I think it'd be silly not to have a... a sort of an established banker talk to us about the the financial crisis that we mentioned mm. earlier mm. in uh, in 2008 it's obviously yeah. a very pivotal moment in the banking industry um, yeah. uh, a lot of people lay blame on the banking industry for such thing but obviously there was so many different things at play to, mm. to cause the 2008 financial crisis um being in the industry in that time what was it like, sort of first-hand experience? What, what was that moment like? Well, we were suddenly the most hated and despised people on the planet, weren't we? I mean, you, it, it was very funny because in, in times leading up to that, if people asked you what you did, you'd say, well, I'm a banker. I think I, I noticed after the crisis that people suddenly said, oh, well, um, I work in financial services or I work <laughs> in the city or I work in London or... Yeah, you know there were all sorts of other ways of expressing it, and then if the if a follow up question came, of course, then you you had to admit that actually you were one of those despised individuals who had destroyed the world. Yeah, um, and then in terms of obviously the regulation in the mm. industry changed massively. Yeah, um, it did. 
for for you, what did you see? How did the the regulations and the culture, the banking culture as a whole, from from something that might have been quite quite relaxed, especially when it came to the housing markets as well? How, how did this all change um, immediately after the crisis? Well, I mean, just sort of that that was one thing I always remember. Uh, and there have been all sorts of crises over the last forty years since I first went into banking, but. That there was one article I remembered reading and I looked it up just because I, it sort of stuck in my mind. And I think the quote, it was a quote from IFR, which is the International Financial Review. Um, and it said that markets, despite their collective expertise, are apparently destined to repeat history as a rational exuberance is followed by equally irrational despair. And I, I think I have to agree with that because I think when I first went into banking in 82, there'd just been the um, Latin American sovereign debt crisis, um, you know, which caused absolute chaos. There have been then the next big one, I suppose, was the stock market crash in 87, Black Monday and quarter of the, the value of the stock exchange was, you know, went overnight. Then certainly the Asian crisis in 97, 98, similar things. Um, the, you know, Thailand collapsed and many of the other Asian economies went with them. Um, and then you come along to, you know, the 2007 and uh, global financial crisis. And that, that last, you know, that last one was dreadful, but in many ways not terribly different from what had gone before. But I think what was very different was that suddenly uncertainty was everyone's enemy, if you like. And banks were felt forced to look internally at the strength of their individual balance sheets, consider the extent to which their exposures to specific geographies or products or business lines, and then having to work under a regime, you know, a very different um, regime where the regulator was, was king, if you like. So external scrutiny became the name of the the game really and every every day there seemed to be new rules and regulations that were impacting on the clients certainly that i was managing so it, it came absolutely from everywhere it was at government central banks um financial regulatory bodies it didn't matter whether they were here in the uk or whether they were regulators from overseas they all impacted um and scrutiny was also coming from the clients because they wanted to know they could trust their banks to be doing the right thing. Um, Did you find your relationships with existing clients went back to square one in terms of that trust that had been established? They, they didn't go back to square one, but that trust, my goodness, it was really tested because we've, the, the bank suddenly found that they had to go back and almost re-engineer everything that they knew internally about their clients. So a whole new industry of you know your customer or KYC, as you, you probably know, was born. And armies of people were drafted in to, to check and double check the, the, the veracity, if you like, of everything that we thought we knew about our clients. And so when you're asking board members of multinationals for copies of their passports, because you're not quite sure that they are who they say they are, even though you've been dealing with them for decades. It really does sort of challenge the, um, the, the, the nature of the relationship that you've got. Um, now, Tim, I think it's fantastic last question that you, you have suggested, actually. Um, um, I'll let you kick it off with it. And I think it's a great way to, to end something Which like this. Which one was this? <laughs> <laughs> when, spe when speaking to someone so established, it'd be be silly not to ask such question i think we have one question which we want to ask at the end of all of the interviews we're going to do which is mm -hmm. from your personal experience are there any specific traits or behaviors which help distinguish successful individuals that's a good one isn't it okay well and i i, I guess the response here has to be in the context of aspirant undergraduates and moving into banking is that what you're looking for just just in general all right well i'll look at it two ways i think you know if you're looking at it for you know what sort of qualities or what sort of um, competencies i think you know that's the word that's generally banded around what do you need 
to be a success, I think you've got to be able to communicate well, and that's written and oral communication. I think you've got to have a very good work ethic. You've certainly got to be able to work together with others. And that means getting on and jollying work colleagues, um, as well as at the same time as delivering, you know, solutions in quite challenging environments very often. Uh, And part of that, I suppose, is problem solving. So you've got to be able to do those things. But the other things that I I just, uh, I genuinely think are so important are just honesty, humility, and just being true to yourself. I've sort of said that throughout this. You've got to be, you've got to be those things because if you're not, I think it undermines the very person that you are. And I think that is so key. And at the end of it, you know, if you find that you, you, you go into banking and you despise and hate everything you're a steward about, then don't stick in it, get out of it. Because it's a, it is not an easy industry to be involved in. It will never be an easy industry. And I think, you know, when I look back at the sort of things that when I started work, branch managers, for example, of NatWest at that time, I can think, well, I thought they had a wonderful job. And the reason they had a wonderful job was because they arrived at 10 in a chauffeur-driven car. They were taking a cup of coffee. They read the paper. They had a bit of a discussion with their clerk who really did all the work. They went out for lunch. Then they went to the golf course. What a great life. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen anymore. The industry has changed beyond recognition. And I think it's become a far more challenging industry for the individual and I think therefore looking at yourself as as part of that industry uh, uh, as well as doing a a job in that industry is just so important that's I mean fantastic thank you very much um Paul I think it's a fantastic way to wrap it up thank you so much for joining us in the meeting room pleasure um it's been lovely having you on it's been fantastic insight not only into what makes a, a great individual, but also how to make your way, I guess, in, in the banking industry, which is so volatile at, at times. Um, so thank you very much. We're both very grateful for having you on. Um, guys, thank you for listening, and we will see you all again next week.